The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back for this continuing study of the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 1, beginning at verse 4 today. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, and I was pleased to hear a number of you went out and bought Bibles this week. I don't know who you are, but the Lord knows. So Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When we studied this book of Revelation, we said that one of the unique features of this last book of the Bible is that it actually contains two beginnings. Verses 1 through 3 constitute what we might call a prologue or an introduction, but the book of Revelation is, in addition to other things, a letter. And because it is a letter, it has a proper beginning, as all letters from the first century generally do. We said that letters typically follow a pattern. Normally what happened in the first century was that you would have the author's name, the sender first. We said that's different from the way that we write letters today. If you want to say who the sender is, you have to go to the end of the letter and see who signed it. That was not the way it was in the first century. Letters typically begin according to a pattern, and the author's name was always there at the beginning. Then there was a reference to the recipient, whoever the letter was being sent to. And then there was normally a greeting followed by a doxology. And this was the pattern, incidentally, for all of Paul's letters that you find. It's also the uh, pattern that you find in Peter's letters as well as in the epistle to the Hebrews. So this was the typical way that letters were written. And John follows that pattern here. We have, first of all, a name, the name of the sender, the author. It was John the Apostle. We said that there have been other names that have been suggested over the course of the history of the church. Eusebius, for example, suggested that perhaps that the book of Revelation was written by a presbyter who was actually living in Ephesus. It was not John the Apostle, but we said when we take all of the evidence into consideration and when you consider the unanimous testimony of the early church fathers, uh, it's probably best to say that this book was written by John the Apostle. Now, it's true, it's different from the other Johannine pieces of literature that we find in the New Testament, the three epistles of John and the Gospel of John, but a lot of that can be chalked up to the fact that this is a different type of 
literature. This is not a gospel. This is not epistle. This is a form of apocalyptic literature. We said we also have to take into consideration that what John is doing here is echoing a great many Old Testament themes, and he is lifting passages or ideas out of the Old Testament and placing them here in his book. We call this Hebraisms, and that probably accounts for some of the differences as well. So all things considered, the author of this book is John the Apostle, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. We talked about the dating of the letter. We said the dating of the letter is significant. Uh, the context or the circumstances under which a book is written can help us to understand better what the book is trying to convey. We said that was true, for example, with Paul's epistle to the Philippians. When Paul wrote that letter, which is a joyful letter, scholars sometimes refer to it as Paul's ode to joy, that's rather extraordinary when you consider the fact that Paul wrote that letter when he was in prison. So understanding his circumstances help us to appreciate what he is saying in that letter. The same thing is true when it comes to the book of Revelation. Understanding the context, the historical context, can help us to appreciate what John is trying to convey. And we said that this letter probably dates, most scholars believe, sometime between the year 90 to 95 A.D., we know that it had to be during a time when the early church was facing intense persecution because the letter speaks of persecution over and over again. And we're going to talk more about that today. And so most scholars say there are only two periods really in the first century that this applies to. It would either be during the reign of Nero, which would be very early on, or it would be during the reign of Domitian when there was the rise of the cult of emperor worship and those who refused to bow down or offer incense to the emperor were oftentimes persecuted. Sometimes that persecution resulted in death. Oftentimes it resulted in banishment, which would fit very well with John being banished to the Isle of Patmos. So we said it was probably written sometime during the year 90 to 95 A.D. when John the Apostle would have been a very old man. So written by John, late in life, while he was in exile. We'll come back to that. Today we want to pick up with a question about the recipients. Uh, to whom was this letter written? Who were the people receiving this letter? One of the things that we talked about when we spoke of the preterists, maybe you remember the preterists, those various schools of interpretation, one of the things that we said about the preterists is that they emphasized that the book was written to a specific audience. The book of Revelation was not written to us any more than Paul's letter to the Galatians or Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written to us. That doesn't mean it wasn't written for us, of course, but it wasn't necessarily written to us. And that is the case here. So we ask ourselves, well, who was this letter written to? It's for us, and we can certainly benefit from it. There's much that we can glean in terms of our life as Christians. But this letter wasn't written to us. Who was it written to? Well, John tells us, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this would have been the Roman province of Asia. This is not what we would consider Asia necessarily today. This is the Roman province of Asia. It is all, and now what is Western Turkey. The seven churches that are mentioned here in the book of Revelation are all located today in what is present-day Western Turkey. They were churches, as I've already suggested, that were facing persecution. Uh, look at verse 9 for just a minute. We're not actually looking at verse 9 today, but it helps us to understand. I, John, the brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Your brother and your partner in the what? In the tribulation. Now the word that is translated there as tribulation is a very interesting Greek word. It is the Greek word philipsis. It's translated as tribulation, but literally translated, it means pressure. All right? Pressure. Uh, the kind of pressure uh, that a submarine would experience at great depths. You know, submarines operate underwater, but there's only so far down that they can go before the pressure does what? Crushes it like a tin can. That, that's the idea here. And so when Paul uses that word flipsis, he's referring to people who are under intense pressure. It's translated tribulation, but I actually like the, the word pressure more because you can understand what that's like, to be under intense pressure. So this was uh, an audience that was facing great difficulty, great pressure as a consequence of the faith. And when we read through chapter 2, it becomes clear what that pressure looked like, what form it took. Uh, John mentions, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, imprisonment as a result of the faith. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, he refers to false teaching that was infiltrating the church that the early believers had to battle against. In chapter 2, verse 14, and then 20 through 21, he speaks of idolatry. Now remember that idolatry does not necessarily mean the obvious things. I think when most people today think of idols, we have a tendency to think of something like the golden calf. But that's not what the New Testament means by an idol at all. An idol can be anything at all that takes the place or a higher priority than God and His gospel. Anything at all. It means even good things, things that God intended for our benefit to be a blessing to us, when they become a higher priority than God and the gospel truth, those things become idols. And idolatry was one of the things that was infiltrating the life of the church. And then finally... He refers to, in chapter 3, complacency. This idea that you're not really hot or cold, you're just sort of going along to get along. Complacency. Reminds me of something that Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said about preaching. Spurgeon said, today, a sermon is a sermon no matter what the topic is. Only the shorter it is, the better it is. That's what he said. That's how people looked at sermons. Now, you have to remember that Charles Spurgeon was writing in the 1870s and the 1880s. You could just imagine what people are thinking today. So the audience here are people who are facing great pressure for the sake of the gospel. They're battling against idolatry. They're dealing with complacency. They're even facing the prospect of imprisonment for fidelity to the truth. Now, Paul says there are seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, you ask yourself, why just seven? Were there only seven churches in Asia? Actually, at this point in history, there were more than seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Paul, the apostle, had been extremely active, and many of these churches had been founded by him on his missionary journeys. For example, there was a church in Troas that is not mentioned here in the book of Revelation. There was a church located in Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians. You can find it in the New Testament. 
And there was a church at Hierapolis. He actually mentions that in Colossians chapter 4. Those churches and others like them are not mentioned here in the book of Revelation. So does that mean that what John is writing does not necessarily apply to the Christians in those places? Well, the answer is no. One of the things that we pointed out when we first take a look at the book of Revelation, and we talked about uh, the various types of literature, the genre, that was the technical term for it, we said that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. And apocalypse or apocalyptic literature contains a lot of symbols and images, the sort of things that you would encounter in a dream. Uh, they typically have an angelic guide, somebody who leads the person through an understanding of the vision, and they're oftentimes filled with symbolic numbers, like the number 666. Well, one of the other symbolic numbers that you encounter over and over again in the book of Revelation is the number 7. It's a number meaning fullness or completion. There are seven trumpets and seven bowls and a city with seven hills and there are seven plagues and the list goes on and on. What that tells us is that the number seven, whenever we encounter it, is not necessarily meant to be taken literally, but symbolically. It represents something greater than itself. Now, that does not mean that the seven churches that are listed here in Revelation were not real churches. Every one of those churches was real. There was a church in Philadelphia and Laodicea and Sardis and Pergamum and so forth. But what we're being told here when John lists only the seven is that those seven are intended to be representative. You understand that? That they are representative of the church universal. And we get another understanding of this because he says, listen, he who has ears, listen to what God says to the churches. This letter was sent to all of those churches, all of the seven, and the entire letter was intended to be read by all of them. In other words, he says to the church in Ephesus, but that doesn't mean that what God says to the church in Ephesus, the church in Pergamum, is not supposed to read and understand. So the reason why this is a letter to the seven churches is that those seven churches represent churches everywhere not just in Asia, but throughout the world. And this is really the section of the book of Revelation that I want us to focus on today, because I think it's very important that we understand as Christians at the dawn of the 21st century what it means to be the church. You know, for many people, to go to church means that you show up at a particular building. Where do you go to church? Well, I go to the Huguenot Church, or I go to the St. Michael's, or St. Philip's, or whatever it is. That's what we think of when we think of church. That is not the New Testament understanding of the church at all. It's not bricks, mortar, and stone. That simply happens to be the locale, the place where the church gathers. Now, if you want a picture of the church, look around this room. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. When we stand up every Sunday and say the creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, what we're saying is a church that was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And it is a Catholic church. Catholic has nothing to do with the Roman church. It means universal. The church throughout the world. And it contains Anglicans, yes, thanks be to God, but it also contains Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and so forth. 
So that's the church that we're talking about. So these letters to the seven churches are meant to be a letter to the church as a whole. And these churches, these individual churches here that John writes to, are representative of all churches in all stages of history. So that is the audience to whom John is writing. Now, I said that while this book was written to those churches in Asia, it was a book that was written for us. As I said, those churches represent churches in every time and every place. And that's very important. That means that what the angel says to these seven churches, what Jesus says to these seven churches through the angel, are words for you and me. Because believe it or not, my friends, we are facing and are going to face in an increasing measure the very same things that these churches faced. Which is to say, we are going to face, as time goes by, an increasing amount of pressure for the sake of the gospel. We are not yet facing imprisonment here in America, but in many other parts of the world, they are facing imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. I like to point this out. We sometimes forget it. When we think about persecutions, we tend to think about the age of Nero, or we think about the reign of Domitian. But the reality is, looking around this room, the majority of us grew up in the 20th century, and more Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. So as time has gone by, persecution of Christians has not abated, it has actually increased. And we can expect that that's going to happen for us as well. We're going to find increasing pressure. Don't you feel that in the culture today? Almost every religious viewpoint seems to be tolerated in American society today because tolerance is a big word for us. It's a big concept. But Christianity in particular seems to be disregarded and oftentimes ridiculed. You dare not make fun of Islam, but you can certainly mock and make fun of Christianity. Just watch television sometimes. You see it over and over again. Well, as Christians, we're going to face increasing pressure not to conform to the pattern of this age. If we're faithful, if we're serious about our faith, and Jesus said the ones who endure to the end will be saved, if we're going to be among those, then we need to realize that we're going to face intense persecution and we better get ready for it. I'd like to be able to tell you it's going to be all rosy from here on out, but it certainly is not going to be for us if we're faithful. So we need to face the prospect of that, and that's why the book of Revelation is so important. It's because we are facing precisely the same things. So that's the audience. The audience originally was the seven churches in Asia. Uh, if you look at a map, they are in a circular pattern, almost as one person has said, the sort of route that a postal clerk would have taken. So they're, they're close by each other. It's a book for us because we are facing these same things. What's the purpose of this book? Well, we've already alluded to it to some degree, but I want to suggest to you that the purpose of the book of Revelation is what you see up there on the screen. It is to show us God's view of history and to offer encouragement to believers facing difficulty in all times and in all places. You know, God is in control of history. There are times when we look at the world around us and we wonder if God is in control. You ever wonder that? If you haven't, you haven't been watching the news lately. 
We look at the world and it can be very discouraging and disheartening. We wonder, is God really in control of things? Or have things sort of spiraled out of control? What the book of Revelation reminds us is that God is ultimately in control. And He sees the beginning as well as the end. You know, the Greeks had two words for time. And I think this is illustrative at this point. There were two words for time that they would generally use. The first word was the word chronos, from which we get the term chronology. You're familiar with that. That's what we would call clock time, a moment in time. When, when we think of history, what do we think of? Oftentimes when we think of events, we think of a timeline on a piece of paper, don't we? And you've got 1776 over here on the left, and you move a little bit further along and you get 1860. And then you move a little further from that, and you get 1941. You move a little further on from that, and you get 2019. That's how we look at history. And you can only be at one point on the line at a moment. You can't live at 2019 and 1776. But God, somebody has said, views it like the whole piece of paper. Another way of putting it, C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, it's like watching a parade. It's like watching a big parade, like the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. And it's like watching that parade, and you're down there on the street level. And what can you see of that parade because of all the crowds and so forth? You can only see what is passing before your eyes at that particular moment, right? You can't see what is coming, and you can't see what has gone before. All you can see is what is right before you. But, he says, God is like the person on the tenth story of a building. And he looks down, and what does he see? The whole sweep of history. The whole sweep of the parade. He doesn't see just one little portion of it. He sees the whole thing. Everything that has gone before, everything that is coming, and everything that is present. God is eternal. He is not bound by time in the way that you and I are creatures of time. And so the book of Revelation is written to remind us that God is in control. He is in charge of history. He is the Lord of all of this, and He sees the end from the beginning, and we can be encouraged by the fact that He has not lost control. So no matter how bad things may be, the book of Revelation reminds us that there is still one who is sovereign. Let me close this brief section here with a quote. Uh, the Archbishop of Chicago, Roman Catholic Archbishop of Chicago, was a man by the name of Cardinal Francis George. He died in 2015. He was a godly man, a remarkable man in so many ways, a really a statesman of American Catholicism. And Cardinal Francis George, some years ago, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. As I said, he just died about four years ago. But in an address given to the clergy of his diocese, this is what he said. Now, I've used this quote before, but it's such a powerful quote that I want to bring you back to it. This is what Cardinal George was saying to his clergy. It was one of his last addresses to them prior to his death in 2015. He said, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. 
Now, when did he write those words? Wrote those words back in around 2013, 2014. That's not a long time ago. He knew he was going to die. He was going to die of his cancer. It was going to take his life. He expected to die in bed. He expects the man who is now the current Archbishop of Chicago to die where? In prison. He expects his successor to die what? A martyr in a public square. Now that's the way he looked at the world and the way things are trending right here in the United States. So it is time for us as Christians to what? To wake up and to recognize the world and the circumstances in which we are seeking to operate. So we need the book of Revelation because we are facing many of the same things that those early believers faced. I'm going to say something. I wasn't going to say it. I debated it. And probably I'll regret it. But nevertheless, <laughs> say a little word about this ongoing lawsuit. You know the lawsuit I'm talking about, John Dice versus John Dice, the one that never ends. You know, oftentimes we think about this lawsuit and people come up to me and they ask me, well, what happens if we lose our buildings? And what will we do? Well, we've already told you we do have a plan B. Well, what I want you to understand is if we lose the buildings, or we don't lose the buildings, and there's no guarantee that we are, some things have actually trended in state court in our favor, but regardless of what happens, we have to remember that God is in control. And even if we lose the buildings, the church still exists. What we can't do is hold these things too tightly. If you are afraid of losing these buildings, my goodness, my friends... What does that say about these believers in the first century who were facing imprisonment for the sake of the gospel? The most that is going to happen if we lose these buildings, the most that is going to happen to the vast majority of people in this room, the clergy may be somewhat of an exception because of extenuating circumstances, but the most that is going to happen to people here is that we are going to be inconvenienced. Nobody's going to be put out in prison because of this lawsuit. Nobody's going to be dragged out and martyred because of the lawsuit. The most that's going to be happening to us is what? We are inconvenienced. <laughs> and so this is good training ground, you see, for the sort of things that the Apostle is talking about here in the book of Revelation as we make our way down the road closer and closer to the time when Christ will come again in glory. We had better prepare ourselves. Are we prepared to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of him who suffered all things and the loss of all things for us? That's where we need to be. If we are not prepared to suffer the loss of all these things and move on to a new place and continue the Lord's work and the power of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you something, we will never be able to persevere to the end that we might be saved. So now's the time in our own minds, in our own hearts to resolve. If we win, praise the Lord. If we lose, praise the Lord. But the Lord's name will be praised. So that is where we need to be. This is a good example for us to follow here in the book of Revelation. Now let's go back here and look at this second part of the introduction. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We said one of the things about this introduction is that we get the name of the author, the name of the sender. We get the name of the recipients, but we also get a greeting. And that's exactly what we have before us now. Grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. One of the things to recognize about the book of Revelation is this. The book of Revelation, like all the Bible, from Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation, has one author, namely God the Holy Spirit, many writers, but one author and one theme. And the theme of the entire Bible and the revelation of John in particular is what? It's Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of this book. You can see that at the very beginning. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Now, some Bibles at the top say the revelation of John. Others say the revelation to John. But it's not John's revelation necessarily. John is simply a conduit. It is whose revelation? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to an angel, to John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. You see that? So this is Jesus Christ's revelation, not John's. Jesus is the revealer, but what is interesting is Jesus is also the focus of the revelation. You see that in verses 4 and 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So the book of Revelation is from Jesus, and it is about Jesus. Now there's a greeting, as we said. Now when a greeting is normally done in a first century letter, it's by the sender. So Paul would say, greetings to the church in Rome, or greeting to the saints in Ephesus. What is interesting about the book of Revelation and this particular letter is that the greeting does not come from John. Remember, he is simply a mediator. He is simply a conduit. This is Jesus' revelation, and so the greeting comes from who? It comes from God himself. First of all, it comes from God the Father. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come? From the Almighty. From the one who is eternal, the one who has no beginning and no end. This is a message to the seven churches, to people facing persecution and difficulty. This is a message to them from whom? From God Almighty. Wouldn't you like to get a letter from the Lord? Well, that's what the book of Revelation is. It is a message from God Almighty. And what is interesting is that many scholars think that what we have here is really a Trinitarian greeting. Because he begins by saying, grace and peace to you from him who was and is and who is to come. That, that harkens back to the Old Testament and to Moses' encounter with the burning bush. You remember that? When Moses was out on the mountainside and he saw this bush that suddenly spontaneously combusted and he said to himself, I'm going to go over and see what that bush is all about. I think that's the redacted version, by the way. I think he probably said a few expletives. What? And, you know, and then he went over to see this bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And out of that, there came a voice. The Lord spoke to him. 
And he said, I have chosen you. You are going to go and you're going to confront Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. I am the Lord your God. And he said, what shall I tell them? What is your name? You know, these Egyptians have all kinds of gods and all kinds of names, Anubis and so forth. What should I call you? And he said, I am who I am. That was the great name for God in the Old Testament. I am. Well, that's an interesting name, isn't it? It simply means that he is. The boast that you and I can say is, I am who I am by the grace of God. But God simply says, I am. The one who was and is and is to come. So the greeting comes from God the Father, but not just from God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that's an interesting expression, the seven spirits. And scholars have debated this for some time, like so many aspects of the book of Revelation. Who are the seven spirits? Uh, Some have suggested it's the seven guardian angels of these seven churches. But others, and I tend to side with this interpretation, given the fact that Jesus Christ is mentioned next, you have the Father, then you have the Son, and sandwiched between them, the seven spirits who are before the throne, I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now you say, no, how does that fit in? Why are there seven spirits? Well, the best example or the best explanation I think that can be provided is found in the book of Isaiah, where we're told that there are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the book of Isaiah is described as the Spirit of the Lord, but also the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of God. The Lord. The Holy Spirit's role is to do what? To grant us wisdom. Not just knowledge. You understand that knowledge and information are not the same things as wisdom. And we've got a great deal of information today. You can Google anything and figure out how to do it. I always say that we now know how to clone a sheep. Knowledge, information can tell you how to clone a sheep. Only wisdom can tell you whether you should. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of the Lord. That is to say, he is authoritative. He is the spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, spirit of power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon the the apostles at Pentecost and empowered them for the work before them. He is the spirit of knowledge. Knowledge here, again, is not the same thing as understanding or wisdom or discernment. Knowledge means the knowledge of the Lord, a relationship with God. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I, who are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, can be raised to the new life of grace that we can have a relationship with God. We can know Him personally. And He's a spirit of the fear of the Lord. What does fear of the Lord mean? It means an awesome respect for the one who is the Almighty. So we have a greeting here from the Father. We have a greeting from the Holy Spirit. And we have a greeting last of all, from Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the way we normally speak of the Trinity, is it? We normally say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Spirit, and Son. Why does the Son come last here in the book of Revelation? Well, it's because of what we've already talked about. It's because Jesus Christ is the focal point of this book. He is the revealer, and He is the revelation. And He is described in a number of different ways, all of which are very important for us. Who is Jesus Christ exactly? Well, John tells us who he is. To begin with, he is a faithful witness. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. 
Now, the word that is translated here as witness is significant. It is the Greek word martyr. It's the word from which we get our term martyr. So Jesus Christ is the faithful witness unto death. That's who He is. He is the one who speaks the truth. He gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked him the question, what is truth? That's what our culture is asking. What is truth? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the only way to the Father. So Jesus bore a faithful testimony before Pontius Pilate. But he spoke the truth so courageously that ultimately it led to his death. You know, that's the world in which we live. That's why these early Christians were facing all of that pressure, the prospect of imprisonment. It was because they were willing to stand for the truth. Truth is an idea that has fallen on hard times, my friends. According to Oprah Winfrey, you know, the 13th apostle in the minds of some people, according to, yes, St. Oprah, in the minds of many people, what she says is you need to speak your truths, your own truth, as though truth is a capital T, you've got your own little individual version of it. That's not the way the Bible speaks of truth at all. There's no individual truths. This is not a subjective matter. It is an objective reality. And because they were willing to say that, because they were willing to say the hard truth that everybody needed to hear, but the truth that is life-giving, Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only truth, they were facing what? The same thing that Jesus faced, the prospect of martyrdom for the gospel. He was a faithful witness, Jesus was, even unto death. But he's not only described here as the faithful witness, he's described as the firstborn of the dead. Jesus spoke the truth and it landed him in jail and it landed him on Calvary, on the cross. But what did God do? God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Keep your finger there in Revelation and turn back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 contains one of the earliest Christian creeds, the earliest Christian creed. We sometimes say the Apostles' Creed, as we will do today uh, during the morning prayer service, the early service, we said the Nicene Creed. You have to remember that those creeds were not hammered out until the year 327. So that is not what we're dealing with here. This is a much, much earlier creed. In fact, the writings of Paul are the earliest of the Christian writers' writings. You all recognize that the Gospels come first in the New Testament, but you know that Paul's writings actually were done before the Gospels. So Paul's writings are the earliest writings that we have. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and following. He says, but in fact... He says, verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But then he goes on and says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus is the faithful witness unto death, but he is the firstborn from the dead. God did what? Vindicated him by raising him from the dead. But the reason he's called the firstborn from the dead, or the firstfruits, is that he's not going to be the last. In other words, if you and I are faithful, and it lands us in prison, it lands us in death, the good news is that God, as he vindicated Jesus Christ, is going to vindicate you and me. So that it is not for this life only, Paul says, that we hope. If it's for this life only, he says that we have hoped what? We're of all men most to be pitied. Because sometimes this life is not all that grand. Sometimes this life is difficulty. It's filled with, with disappointment and heartache and loss and misery and sickness. Don't you want to know that there's going to be a time when God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes? That's the hope that we have. Yes, I'll be the firstborn of the dead if I trip over that. <laughs> so he is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. And here's the last thing about him. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over the affairs of men and nations. I cannot tell you how important that is because think about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. After he was baptized by John in the River Jordan, he did what? He was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And one of the things that Satan offered him if he would simply bow down and worship him was what? All the kingdoms of the earth. Well, Jesus was not disinterested in the kingdoms of the earth. He simply was not willing to have the kingdoms of the earth on the devil's terms. But in the end, the kingdoms of the earth are given to him. They are given to him by God because he is the one who has won the victory. Faithful unto death, vindicated on the third day, and now the ruler of the kings of the earth. As Paul says in Philippians Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the reason these titles have been given to Jesus Christ and John mentions them here and more titles are given to Jesus than the other persons of the Trinity here, the reason for that is that these titles are meant to encourage us as believers and encourage these churches in Asia in times of trouble. We are encouraged to be faithful witnesses, no matter what the cost may be. Are you ready for that? You know, it's not enough to say Jesus is Savior. Jesus has to be Lord. And somebody has said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, Jesus is not Lord at all. So here's my question to you. You answer it yourself. Don't want to shout out an answer. Is Jesus Lord of all in your life? Because if He is, if you are faithful, it may get you in the times in which we are living into trouble. You may end up in prison. Your children 
may end up martyrs in a public square. Are you being faithful unto death? That's what it's encouraged. We are to be Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? To be a little Christ. That's what the word means, by the way. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ. And if Christ was faithful unto death, we are called to be faithful unto death. He is the firstborn of the dead. That's a reminder to us that this life is not all there is. Even if we suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, the good news is that one day we will indeed be vindicated. Because Jesus was the firstborn, but not the last from the dead. And the third thing is this. We are to recognize that God is in control. He is the one who was and is and is to come. History is firmly within his grasp. One of the things that we're going to see here in this image of Jesus Christ is that he is the one who is seated between seven candlesticks and he holds the seven stars in his hands, the seven stars recognizing that those represent the churches. In the midst of all that thlipsis, in the midst of all of that pressure, in the midst of all of that persecution and that imprisonment, God holds these people in the palm of his hand, and that's where he holds us. Regardless of what court systems do or don't do, what judges do or don't do, regardless of what comes our way, the good news is that God holds us in the palm of his hand, and so we are simply called to be faithful unto death. Are you ready for it? I pray you are. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the book of Revelation. It can seem sometimes to be a strange book, but when we begin to peel back the layers, it is a remarkable book, and it speaks to us today with power and with relevance for where we are. Help us, Lord, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ the firstborn of the dead, the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings of the earth. May he rule and reign on the throne of our hearts this day, for we ask it in his name. Amen.